We are Vincent and uh, we're enjoying this challenging time through the lockdown. We've got a verse for you, uh, Philippians 4 verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. It's uh, always easy to rejoice when things are going well, but when it's tough, it's a bit tougher to rejoice. But the joy of the Lord is our strength. Um, to all the varsity students who have to finish their courses online, stay strong, good luck. Hi guys, Michele here from the 6. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, SBC family. We want to say hello from the Povies. Hope you guys are all keeping well out there, keep safe, and we love and miss you guys. And welcome from me as well. We're so glad that you joined us for another Sunday service online. We're excited to dive into part three of our Songs of Salvation series today as Matt Johnson takes us through Psalm 131. If you missed our first two parts, you're welcome to go and look for those on our Facebook page or our YouTube channel or even our church website. They're easily downloadable there. But if you battle, you're welcome to drop us a message and we can even WhatsApp it to you. I've got nothing new to bring to your attention today and so I'm going to hand over to one of our elder couples who will pray us into the service. Then Matt will get going with the sermon and we invite you to stay tuned afterwards to worship together with us as the SBC family. You're also welcome to worship the Lord by giving this morning and you can do so via EFT. Hope you have a great service. If there's anything that God lays in your heart that you would like to encourage the body with, you're welcome to drop that in the comment section. Good morning, SPC. A warm welcome from the woods. It really is wonderful to be able to still do our online gatherings together. And we are looking forward to worshiping with you together, listening to the word this morning. I would just like to encourage you with a word from Psalm 62 verses 5 to 8. Yes, my soul find rest in God. My hope comes from Him. Truly, He is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in Him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to Him, for God is our refuge. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this firm foundation. We thank you that you are the cornerstone and we are, our faith is built upon uh, this rock that cannot be moved. Lord, we come to you this morning as your church, your bride, and we love you and we long uh, to know you more. We're praying, Lord, that this morning our hearts would be open to you and that you would continue to grow us and make us more like you. Jesus' name, Amen. Over to you, Matt. Hi, SBC. Welcome to today's online service. And again, welcome to anyone who's joined us for the first time. And anyone who's been joining us who hasn't quite yet come to the place of calling Christ their Lord and Savior but are interested and want to get to know God more, you're so welcome here. And we hope that whoever's watching today, that uh, this will really be helpful to you. Uh, we're in part three or week three of a series called Songs of Salvation. And we've been looking at the book of Psalms. And we've just been taking out a few of these wonderful songs or hymns written uh, by these ancient believers, um, by God's people, and, and that have been a treasure for us over centuries. And the wonderful thing uh, about this book of Psalms, and the reason why we've called it Songs of Salvation, is because really these Psalms are faith with flesh on them. It's faith with flesh on it. So they are just so real. These Psalms are so honest and they're so grappling of what it means to be human and to find God in this life and the honesty of wrestling and reconciling faith with the reality of life. And there are wonderful truths that are discovered and revealed to these great saints of the past who wrote them. And uh, they are a great help to us. And uh, last week, Joe preached an excellent sermon on Psalm 126. And it was, again, just another exercise of seeing how deep you can actually go in these psalms or how wonderful um, you can mine into them and, and get uh, wonderful gold out of them. And so I want to encourage you to listen to his sermon again. What he preached on was so deep and so helpful to anybody that wants to get to know God and um, discover him in this life and follow him more fully. But uh, listen to these sermons more than once. 
and uh, come to, and let them soak into your heart and teach you all of their wonderful wealth that they have to offer us. So today, I am tackling one of the shortest Psalms. I know some of you might be breathing a sigh of relief, but anyway, it's Psalm 131. And uh, it's one of the shortest Psalms. It's only three verses, but like Spurgeon said, it's one of the longest to learn. And so I'm trusting that God is really going to give me grace today to be able to unpack the wonders of this Psalm and what it has for us. And uh, so I'm going to hand over to Steve Wood, one of our deacons from the 6 p.m. service, who's going to be reading for us today. So over to you, Steve. Good morning, SBC. My name is Steve Wood. I'm a deacon at the 6 p.m. and I'm going to be sharing God's word with us this morning. It comes from Psalm 131 and from the English Standard Version. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Thanks, Stevie. So, Psalm 131 is of the same set uh, as what Joe preached on last week, which is the Songs of Ascent. And uh, the Israelites would sing these psalms as they would go towards Jerusalem for their annual festivals. And the reason why they called Songs of Ascent was Jerusalem was on a very high hill. So no matter which way you came from it in Israel, you had to climb. And whilst you climbed up towards God's temple in Jerusalem, uh, you would sing these songs. And really, in essence, this Psalm 131 uh, describes something that is a quest for every human being. It is a tranquil and contented and satisfied soul. That's really what we are after as human beings. And if you just give me a moment, I'd love to unpack this for you so that uh, we understand the psalm today. But really, if you had to ask me and if you had to, ex had to examine yourself, the quest for every human being, for you and for me, is to experience this tranquil, contented, satisfied soul. And it comes through when David says, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with or on its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. And if you have ever seen a little kid like our kids, uh, Elijah and Sarah, they love to climb on their mom's lap and just lie there. And there's this peaceful, contented satisfaction. Everything's right in the world. That's the experience. And um, David says, I found it. I have. And um, one of the things that I'm amazed at, you know, in our craziness of what we call life is we don't initially recognize as human beings that uh, we, we have this problem of a dissatisfied soul. I, would, I wouldn't be surprised if you said to me, I don't really know if I quite agree with that. Well, the reason why we struggle to see that the problem is really on the inside of us is because we're so preoccupied with the symptoms of a dissatisfied soul. This drivenness to experience certain things or have certain things or um, to achieve certain things in this life in order that we might have a quiet and contented soul. We might feel good about life. But you see, we start preoccupied by the symptoms of this inner dissatisfaction inside of us. We don't realize initially at first that the problem's actually from the inside. And everything else is a manifestation of that. And so as human beings, we actually really struggle to understand ourselves. We get gripped by certain desires or, or smashed by certain disappointments. Or There are so many aspects to life where we try and search and seek and find answers to, but we miss the actual source of what's the problem. And the problem is this dissatisfied soul. These hearts that are so restless inside of us. In actual fact, the human heart is the most demanding thing on planet Earth. It demands to be satisfied. And the reason why we struggle to understand ourselves is we miss the fact that the problem's here. And so this Psalm 31 helps us to get the starting place right. And really something astonishing has happened to this King David who wrote the psalm. He's the same David that killed Goliath. He says it's possible to experience such quietness, such contentedness, such peace, such a sense of everything is right with the world because everything is right inside of me. And it's possible. And uh, Psalm 131 wants to show us how. And I want to tackle this in three parts today. 
The first is we have to identify the problem correctly. That's in verse 1. There has to be something that we have to overcome in order for us to enter into this wonderful peace and satisfaction of the soul. The second part we're going to look at is verse 2, which is the process God uses in our lives to help us get over this big problem that we have in us so that we can enter into this wonderful peace. And the third is, what is the call for us? The practice. That's the third part, the practice. Well, what are we supposed to do when we are experiencing this process that God is putting us through in order for us to enter into this wonderful sense of peace? So let's look at uh, the problem, this first point, which is the problem, verse 1. David says, Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. In other words, haughty. Uh, <laughs> you know, if you just stop for a moment and just think about what I just said, this is a rather astonishing statement to make. Not so. I mean, if I said to you today, I'm so humble, you know, just I'm such a humble person. You go, get over yourself, buddy. You're so conceited. I mean, the very profession of humility that a person makes opens them up to uh, the accusation of pride. But David here is being genuinely sincere because he's not addressing you and me. He's addressing God. He's saying, you, God, who, who, like he says in Psalm 139, who knows every thought of my life and is familiar with all of my ways. You can judge me perfectly, honestly, before you. You know that I have reached a state by your help that I have not lifted up my heart. I've not uh, raised up my eyes or raised them too high or looked haughtily. Yeah. <laughs> What David's talking about here, he's being genuine, he's being perfectly sincere and honest and truthful. And what he's talking about here is exceedingly rare, exceedingly rare. You see, this tranquility that verse 1 enables in verse 2, this place of peace and contentment and rest, it is something which is so rare in human beings because the trait that David's talking about in verse 1 is so rare. You see, to be human is to be like inside of us in any way. And if you really had to examine yourself, and if I was to be honest with you today, to be human is to feel tumultuous inside. It, life is a bit like uh, uh, an, an ocean wracked by waves. It's this great tumult, and you ride, and goes, you reach these peaks on the inside, and then you reach these troughs. And, Life always feels so vulnerable to these triggers of different emotions and different states inside of us. We're so tumultuous and restless. And for David to be able to say, man, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child on its mother's chest. So my soul is within me. Everything's just right. It's so rare. And I want to say to you today, what David's talking about in verse 2 is it matters because essentially without this inner tranquility and peace that David's speaking about is we can't possibly be happy. This tranquility and satisfaction and contentedness on the inside is essential for true happiness in this life. I mean, and I could expand this in various different ways and illustrations. I mean, but to be brief, I mean, you can have the best looking partner in the world. But if there's no peace in that relationship, I mean, you won't enjoy them at all. You'll be thinking, how can I trade them in? That's be the honest thoughts of your heart or perhaps you've built this majestic house and with all of your money and it's beautiful but if there's no peace in that house you'll drive past the townhouse and go gosh that looks more more appealing to them what i'm going home to right now you see this essence of peace and tranquility is essential for our happiness but we don't find it and what david's experienced is exceedingly rare and david said something had to be dealt with in his life in order for him to taste and experience it. God had to deal with something in his life. David had to participate with the process, but God had to deal with this massive problem that was in David and that's in you and me. And that's our pride. The thing that stops us from this inner, tranquil, satisfied space inside of us is pride. And pride really has been, if you think about it, the greatest woe uh, and source of woe in this world. You know, if you go back right to the very beginning, there was that angel Lucifer, and uh, he was the most beautiful of all the created angels. And yet when he saw God, he said, I want to be like that. I want to be like this. He became restless and dissatisfied with his position. And through pride, he wanted to exalt himself to the same degree as God. And because of that, pride that came into Satan's heart 
A third of the angels fell with him, and the source and chaos that happened um, from this pre-creation of the world, it started there. That's where all of the chaos began, was because of pride. Same thing happened to our ancestors, Adam and Eve. I mean, they had everything they could have possibly wanted. They had a beautiful garden. They had God had given them everything. Ah, but there was one thing they couldn't have. And Satan, that angel Lucifer, fallen angel Lucifer, came to them and said, Hi, if you just eat of that fruit, you'll be like God. And they go, Wow, we want to be like that. Look at what we've got. This is all rubbish, man. In comparison, we want that. And pride made them made them dissatisfied, made them driven for something that was um, outside of their scope and reach. And the result was they fell into sin. And friends, we have the same sickness in our soul. It's because of pride, because of this ego, we are never satisfied or still, because the ego is always sensitive. It's always comparing and competing around. It's always trying to look for significance through this contest of attaching itself or achieving things, obtaining things. It's never at peace. It's never satisfied, just where it's at. It's never secure, never feels safe, always feels threatened, always feels sensitive. It's never at peace. And so, friends, today, Pride, in essence, really is sin. It is the definition of sin. It is this desire to exalt oneself and one's desires over God and his word. In other words, we tend to pride makes us want to break the boundaries, the good boundaries that he's given us in our lives. I want my own way. I want it on my terms. I want it in my time. Pride is the thing that drives us demands satisfaction and is so sensitive. And this is what happens with pride. And this is its danger. And this is why we are a mess, really. It's because pride ultimately causes us to venture where we should not go. And this comes through in the second part of the first verse where David says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. That is a profound statement. David is accepting his limitations. He's accepting his boundaries that God has put him in. And he's like, pride will not recognize that. Pride is the exact opposite. It is a competitiveness even to compete with God, even to compete with his wisdom and his ways and his word. It is a desire in us to break the bounds of our limitations and to venture into areas we shouldn't go. And that's where the mess comes in, really. And that's where all the trouble comes in within ourselves. We are so dissatisfied with the way God has made us. We want to be more like that person. We want to look more like this person. We want to be more clever. We wish we were like this. We're never satisfied just with the way God has made us. Because of pride, we want more. We want to be more than what God has made us to be. Well, what about this with others? Let me tell you, James chapter 4, verse 1 to 2, he summarizes the human race so beautifully. It says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. Friends, what's the reason for holding grudges and not forgiving someone? We refuse to climb down from self. We refuse to let go of what is rightfully ours and what should be ours and the retribution that we should deserve. Everything is about this need for satisfaction and pride is willing to burst the boundaries that God has put upon us to obtain it. And I want to say this. It doesn't cause trouble just within yourself and with, with others. It causes trouble with God. you know why? Oh, man. Because pride makes us feel like we can even judge God. We can even judge his actions in our lives. Why me, God? Why should this happen to me? We feel like God owes us an explanation. We feel like God has to prove himself to us before we will believe in him. We question him. We, we push back against him. We even feel, because of pride, the right to judge God. Now, that's crazy. The all-powerful, all-wise, all-knowing being being questioned by a finite lump of carbon 
and being corrected by it. Ah, oh, friends, you know what we are like as human beings? We walk around like there's a chip on our shoulder. God owes us something. Man, if there's any discomfort, he owes us. He owes us a good life. He owes us a quiet life. He owes us everything that our hearts desire. In other words, the, our great problem, and this is what our culture needs to understand, and our great problem that we have with God is our pride because we set ourselves up against him and his ways. We even compete for his glory. He has to deal with us on our terms. Let me tell you, God will never do that. Can I say something that our generation and our culture and you and me need to hear today? Is God owes us nothing. God owes us nothing. He owes you nothing, my friend. And we walk around and everything that we've achieved, everything that we are, it belongs to us. It doesn't belong to us. Friends, if you want to know what true humility is, it's realizing that you are created by him. You have life because he lives. You have life because he decided. You have a number of days set apart. Every food that you eat, every every clothes, piece of clothing on your back, every intellectual um, achievement you've made, every success in work has been done through what he has supplied to you. Everything you have is God's. You are God's. Nothing that in this life belongs to you or is for your glory. It is all for him. But pride makes us think that we have a, a capacity to judge God and to demand of God in a way that is so entitled. And so trouble comes in with God because we feel he owes us. When, friends, everything that we have and everything that we are are his. And I can unpack this. We venture into spaces in our criticism of God and in our demands of God where David says, I'm not going to go there because I'm not you. I could even say theologically we do this. We cannot cope with not understanding everything in the Bible. Everything must make sense. Everything must be perfectly in neat boxes before we will actually trust God and just say, this is what his word says. I believe it. I'm going to do it. No, we have to try and so neatly pack God in such a way that everything has to be so organized and so understood so that we can understand and be, be on the same intellectual level as God. Let me tell you, when we come to God, we are so unequal. We are nothing like him. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. We are the ones coming to him with humility and reverence and awe because of who he is. We don't venture into areas which are divine and beyond our capacity. But you see, the foulness of our hearts makes these demands. The pride in our hearts makes these We are so driven by this thing called pride. It is so demanding. And it has to go, my friends. It is our worst enemy. Because it even sets ourselves up against God. Okay, so let's look at uh, this the process of how David overcame this pride. I mean, we all recognize how terrible it is um, in this first point. But uh, how did David overcome this, and, and how did God help him do so? Well, it comes through in the second verse, which says, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with, with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. You see, <laughs> David had to go through a weaning process. And we can learn a lot around just this term of weaning, of how God dealt with David in his life to help him get to this place where he'd overcome pride and was enjoying the tranquility and rest because of it. So let me just say, this first, the first point is this around weaning, is it represents great distress. It represents a great struggle, a great battle um, that David had to go through because a child... And weaning a child with milk to solids is a very difficult thing. Um, I'm sure moms who've experienced it here uh, are familiar with it and dads who've observed it. But in the Middle Eastern culture, they would wait until about two or three, the child was two or three years old before they would wean that child. I mean, remember little Samuel, who got weaned at three years old and was taken to Eli. But there was no formula in those days. Little top-up drinks didn't exist. And there was no Cerelac or Nestum or Squishes that were available. Um, it was a very difficult process. It was a process that caused great anguish in a child 
um, in the child. And we, the same is true today. A child who is undergoing a weaning process, um, it's traumatic for them. It's a shock because suddenly they're being denied something that they really, really want and they usually got. Uh, it's a removal of comfort. I mean, part of the process of, of feeding and suckling on a mom is that child feels connected and secure and comforted. And there's a severing that happens there. There's something that is very, very painful for the child because they can't connect with the mother in the way that they were used to before. Also, because uh, there's a removal of, of what was produced so easily on demand. You know, before, for a baby, they would just give a good few cries and they'll be satisfied with the breast. Suddenly, no one's responding to them in the way that they used to. And so, <laughs> essentially, what happens when there's a weaning process happening is that there is a great battle of wills between the mom and between that child. And uh, it can be quite an unpleasant experience. And David says this is what actually happened to him. It had happened because like a weaned child, he says, he's come out of this process. But it was a shock for him. It was very sudden and it was very painful for David, this process of weaning that God took him through. We don't know exactly what were the things in David's life that caused this weaning. And if you had to ask me, I would say weaning happens throughout life. God brings us through many. He weans us off different things at different times, in different ways, and in different seasons. But we know of two big ones in David's life that were a real shock to his system, that were a weaning process for him. The first was when David decided to build a temple for God. I mean, have you ever thought how audacious that is? I mean, imagine I'm going to build God a temple. I'm going to build him a house in which he can live in, you know. I mean, the, the thought is, this God who made this universe. Anyway, David clearly had the idea, he's going to build a house for God. I mean, it's it sounds quite, quite crazy to think about it. But he wanted to do it. And, you know, David, up until that point, had experienced the milk of success. I mean, everything in David's kingship had happened so easily. He was a brilliant general. He'd beaten all his enemies. He was a brilliant leader. He had the best mighty men around him. I mean, no king in that time had the quality of men following him like he did. He was a brilliant musician. I mean, he could play that lyre or that harp. He could write the most phenomenal. I mean, this guy had it made. Ah, and he thought, you know what? I'm just going to keep going. I'm going to build this temple for God. And something, something happened for the first time, and that had not happened in his life before as king. God says, no, you're not going to build me a temple. And David is shocked. Suddenly he goes, what? I can't do this? Even his spiritual ambition for God would thought like such a good idea. But the first time, God says, no. And you know what David says? It was such a shock. It came to the prophet Nathan, where God said, you've got too much blood on your hands. You're not building me a house. David says this in 1 Chronicles 17, verse 16. He said, Then David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this thus far? That you have brought me thus far. David realized in that moment of God saying no to him, which was painful, was humiliating for him, that actually God had been the one that had brought him along the whole way. Everything that he had achieved had been by the grace of God. But the second one, and possibly even more painful, was when David slept with Bathsheba and then killed her husband, Uriah. You see, this is what pride does. You see, in the first point, pride made David think he could build a house for God. He could venture into that realm of doing something that great, which was actually outside of his scope. And God says, no, you've ventured too far. You've, you've, you've occupied yourself, yourself with things too great. But the second one was this, David's pride as a king and his success, the milk of success he had enjoyed, made him feel entitled to another man's wife. Why shouldn't I have? I'm king. I get to do what I want. And pride, my friend, caused him to sleep with another man's wife and then kill her husband. And you know what? From that moment, Nathan came to him, the prophet, and said in 2 Samuel 12 verse 10, he says, the sword shall never depart from your house. From that moment, the milk of success and blessing that had flowed so wonderfully from God in David's life, it dried up. And if you read the life of David, it is a painful account of how David over and over again suffers terrible hardship 
because of the disorder and chaos and sword that comes to his household. Until the day he dies, he experiences trouble. So friends, today, how does this weaning process work with you and me? Because what David had to go through, we have to go through in our lives. You see, there is the promise of this tranquil, satisfied, contented rest that is so wonderful in this life and the next. But to get there, in this life, we have to go through a lot of weaning. And this is not something that is easy. And I want to say this weaning, if I had to summarize, it happens in four stages. And the first is stage one, where the parent decides to start the weaning process. You might go, oh, my word, how am I going to sort out this pride? How am I going to fix this? How am I? I say, don't worry, my friend, because God's going to do it. <laughs> the mommy decides where no more milk is going to come. So you carry on living your life as faithfully as you can to God. Don't try and interrogate all the corners of your life for pride. Let me tell you, only God is the one able to deal with such a big enemy, such a big in us towards him and he decides when weaning starts and the way he decides is i'm going to throw you into a trial or i'm going to take something away you land in something that is a shock so that is something that it jolts you and it goes what just happened and let me tell you COVID 19 is the perfect season for this to happen in i mean you could have lost your job suddenly you were this successful businessman in one of the echelons of, of this company and you lost your job you, you suddenly are nobody in the eyes of the world maybe you got some terrible diagnosis or a cancer and man it, it was the greatest shock of your life you still had many years ahead of you that seemed to be so full of life or you can put anything in there today maybe a death of a, a loved one that that it was such a shock to you you can put anything in that category, but you landed in it. You didn't choose it. And you pray and you're saying, God, please, would you bring back the milk? And it's not coming. Friends, stage one is the parent decides the weaning process. And if you are in this space in your life at the moment, you don't want to be in this season. You don't want, I mean, there are such, so many, maybe you're in a job you don't like. Maybe the salary is not very good or you lack recognition or you want promotion, but no one's giving it to you. Uh, maybe it's the type of work you just feel is so beneath you. You know, this milk of recognition and success, it's not coming. I mean, the other, uh, what, maybe it's that uh, you, you had to move or relocate. To sit, I mean, you can look at these various areas where your comfort's been taken from you. Um, there's a delay. There's no, uh, God can do this in any way. The milk has dried up. You're looking for it, but there's nothing coming. What came and flowed so easily before has dried up. Friends, that's stage one. And many of you might be in that stage right now where you're just going, what the heck happened and how long am I going to be here for? Stage two is the child resists. <laughs> there, there's this tussle between the parents and the child. There's a clash of worlds, and this is what we're like. We get angry with God. We cry out to him and say, you know, why aren't you giving me what I want? And the, the difficulty thing of this is, is that with weaning, friends, the child feels rejected from the parent. That child feels pushed away from the mom. That child feels that this is cruel. This is harsh. Why aren't you letting me draw close to you and enjoy what I had previously from you? It's devastating. And I want to say to you, when stage one hits, stage two comes fast. Because suddenly you feel almost betrayed by God. Why? <laughs> You're, I don't want this. Or when is this going to come? Or when is this going to change? Or there is, there is this clash of wills. But you also feel rejected. You feel rejected by God. Because he hasn't continued to supply that milk that you were so used to before. Now, I want to say to you today, this weaning process, it's incredibly painful. I don't want to make this trite. I don't want to make this uh, situation or process that God puts us through. It is really, really difficult because there is this desperate longing in us to have this need met and God won't do it. You see, what it's like to be in the weaning process and why it's so painful 
is because something very precious is being withheld from us. You know, that baby just wants one thing, just one thing, milk, just wants milk. If you had offered anything else in planet Earth, it wouldn't care. It just wants the milk. Give me the milk. And it can't get it. And the reason why weaning is so painful for us is because the very treasures, the things that are important to us in this life, the thing that our hearts are going after, God's withholding, is painful. You know, as Jesus said, your heart is where your treasure lies. Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, weaning is a refusal to give you that treasure that you are longing for and striving for. It is withheld from God. Just like that milk. One thing I just want, just want that. Because I know. And friends, after stage two, stage three comes with a child submits. You see, something happens if we will let the weaning process take place in our lives. Is that the child begins to accept the foods that the parent is offering. And you know the wonderful thing about this is, you know. Suddenly, where there was just milk, mother's milk, breast milk, the whole world opens up of food. You know, I don't know about you, but I just have to say, have you ever tasted breast milk post-weaning? So we went to a stage where Marina would express for our children because it was a night bottle feed or, I don't know, it dropped them off at their nana's house. And it was a messy process, so you would have to defrost the milk and then pour it into the bottle, and it would often go into your hand. And often, you know, just lick... It was disgusting. I don't know who, I don't know how children could possibly long for something so foul. And I remember thinking to myself, who wants this milk? It's it's disgusting. And there, you just see Sarah's eyes like, <laughs> when she got the bottle, it was like heaven had arrived. I said, what? You know, and then when you see that this world opens up with weaning, suddenly you should see her tackle a, a drumstick of chicken. I mean, she's like, yum, I mean, this stuff's amazing. Or roast potatoes or sugar. Suddenly you realize that what you were after before, this horrific, disgusting, putrif putrific milk, it was just gross, is nothing in comparison to the diet that God, suddenly the whole world has opened up of the choicest foods and the variety and the wonderful thing of being full with solid food, not milk that you constantly get to run back to every few hours because you're, you're hungry. The satisfaction of it far outweighs what happened before, what they were longing for. The child experiences the joy of what it means to be satisfied. And then stage four, the final stage happens, is that the child forgets. And this is the powerful thing, is that after the weaning process, uh, the child isn't even interested in the breast milk anymore. Do you notice David could say, like a, a weaned child on its mother, could lie very next to the source of that breast milk, those, those breasts before, and not long for it, not thirst for it, not even think about it. There's been growth. There's been maturity. And a wonderful thing in stage four, there's been a restoration in the relationship. Where before, the child is going, I don't want this, I don't want this, I don't want this. Suddenly, when they accept the weaning process, they're able to come again and get close to their mom. And they suddenly don't even long for what they thought they couldn't live without. When that happens, the growth step, the maturity, the weaning is complete. And it's worth it. And this is what's happened to David. He's undergone this incredible transformation. He's reached this wonderful conclusion, but it came through suffering. It came through God denying David the very things he wanted. And it was through this weaning that David discovered greatness. You see, David experienced what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, verse 3 to 4. It says, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And David discovered greatness because he was willing to become like a weaned child. Now, what does it mean to become a child? Our friends... A weaned child is only satisfied with his mum. 
I don't know about you, but when my boy or my girl wanted their mother, you could try to tempt them with anything. All they wanted was Marina. The Afrikaans uh, language has a wonderful saying, they're marfas, right? When a child is marfas, there's no way you're going to get that child off their parents. You can try and drag them, pull them, offer them sweeties, doesn't matter. All they want in this world is their mom. And friends, that's what it means. To become like a child is all that we want is God. Nothing else can tempt us from him. Nothing else can pull us off him. God's got us. He's got our hearts. That's what it means to be weaned like a child, is to say you can tempt you with anything. I don't want it. I want you. I want my Father in heaven. I want to be God first. It's like that little kid is marvelous. To become a child is that I'm God first. I want him. I'm only satisfied with him. I'm on his lap and I'm close to him. And I feel the sense of the security of his arms around me. That's where I want to be. I don't want to be anywhere else a wean child secondly is totally dependent on his mom you look at that child it doesn't matter that now the moms withhold suckling from that child that child when he's hungry still he comes mommy i'm hungry elijah does it all the time oh my goodness i'm hungry he just goes to he knows his mom's going to provide and even though the diet has changed the source of provision hasn't and you see, this is the joy of being like a weaned child, is that we are totally dependent on God. We're not looking to that boss or that paycheck or that approval. We're not looking to that status or that item. We are totally dependent on this wonderful, constant, unchanging Father who loves us and has promised to provide for us. That's what it's like to be like a child. And the third is this, is a child, a weaned child feels totally secure in the loving arms of its mom. And it's a carry on from this previous point I mentioned now, is do you know the wonder of finding your security in God alone? You know what happens in our home? <laughs> when our kids hurt themselves, Who's the first one they run to? They run to their parents. Guess it better. Guess it better. They don't want anybody else. If they fall and mom's in the vicinity, they want to go to mom. doesn't matter who else is around. So it's like that. Kids have an amazing... They just want to, if they are afraid, who do they run to? They run to their mom. When they are shy, who do they hide behind? They hide behind the skirt or pants of their mom. Mom is the security for that child. No matter what happens, whether they get hurt, whether they're afraid, whether they're scared, they run to one person, and until they're in the arms of that one, they're not happy. Friends, that's what it's like to become like a child that's weaned, is we feel totally secure in the arms of one person, and that's God. And there is such peace and contentment. Have you ever watched a child sleep in their mother's arms? It's the most beautiful picture. There are such peace and rest. The world might be going chaotically around them, but they're resting. They're resting on their mom. And that's what it means to become like a weaned child in God. You are finding your total security in God. And this happens as he allows these things that we attach ourselves to and look for and run after in the world to be weaned from us. But friends, unless we become like a child, that's what God is saying through Jesus. Unless we become like a child, we're not going to be able to experience the wonders of the kingdom. And so my last point is this today. Well, then what practice do we need to do? Verse three, what do we need to do whilst this winning process is happening? Well, is anyone in a season of winning at this moment? Again, I'd say this has been an unprecedented season in our, our lives or for opportunity to be weaned off things, right? And what does God ask of us in these painful processes of when we're being denied what we really want from him? As David tells us in verse 3, he says, Oh, Israel, all the people of God, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. What is David saying here? You see, David recognizes the heart is very tricky territory. You see, you can't just say to the heart, stop it. Just stop, stop stressing or stop wanting that or stop wanting people's approval. It doesn't work, you see. 
Just like weaning, if you say to that poor child who is starving hungry, stop it, stop asking me for food and not give that child any food, do you think anything's going to change? No. And that's the way the heart works, is unless you replace the one affection with another. In other words, just like in the weaning process, you have to replace the milk with solid food. Unless the heart has a replacement from wanting these things or going after these things, nothing is going to change. And this is the danger of what we have. We think, well, we can just switch our hearts off or switch that desire off, or we we just want to be, we can switch over into a different mode of operating. We can't. The heart has to have something else replaced in the, or put in place of what the thing is that we're after, and that's not good for us. And <laughs> this Spurgeon was very helpful in this, but, uh, you know, here's some examples of what it means to hope in the Lord this time, uh, both now and forevermore. You know, are you putting your trust in man at the moment? You know, maybe it's that boss for your promotion. Or maybe it is this desire for happiness and security in that person or that friendship. Or or maybe there is a desire to look for someone else at the moment where you're just struggling really with approval. Well, the way you deal with that is you've got to push that out of your heart by putting your faith and trust in God. You, you, you can't just say, well, I'm not going to look for people's approval anymore. I'm not going to put my trust in man, in other words. No, no, the way you do this, I'm not going to trust, I'm going to trust in God. I'm going to replace the one with the other. Maybe you are expecting great things from this world. Maybe it's potential achievements or fame that you want. You've got to transfer that onto God. You know, you've got to expect great things of God. You can't just say, well, I don't want to expect anything from this world, you know, because I know you're going to transfer and say, God, I want to expect great things from you. Or maybe you're struggling with worldly ambition to be somebody in the eyes of the world. Man, you've got to change that ambition to be ambitious for God. You've got to say, I want to be, I want to go after him. I want to replace what this ambition was for, which was just temporary passing um, approval and acknowledgement and recognition as well to go, I want to go after him. Or are you consumed with worry or fear and anxiety? Man, the way you got to do it is you've got to replace it with putting your rest and confidence in God's faithful promise. You've got to switch the one thing for the other. You've got to change the one hope for the other hope. You've got to take, let your heart be taken off the one thing and attached to another. The heart can't be taken off one affection and then be left without another. You've got to hope. You've got to, you've got to hope in the Lord. In other words, you've got to take what you are attaching yourself to and you've got to attach it in God. See, what is the essence of hope? It's to attach yourself to an outcome you really want. I hope I get that A. I hope I get married. I hope I get that kid. I hope I get that promotion. You're attaching yourself to an outcome you really want. You've got to switch it again. I want my outcome to be God. I want my hope to come in Him. I want my outcome to be closer to Him, to be more pleasing to Him, to be more discover more of Him. My hope is God, both now and forevermore. That's my hiding place. My heart wants to run after other things. I've got to switch that run after God. And he will see to the weaning. I tell, you, I tell you, God is such a way of taking away what needs to be taken at the right time. The question is, will you submit to that? And the way that you do that is say, God, though this hope is being taken away at this moment, I'm not seeing an outcome that I really want. I'm hoping in you. I'm transferring that hope on you. Whatever it is this time, and whatever season is right now that you find yourself in, whatever suffering it might be, I don't like it. I don't want to be here. I don't want to experience this thing. Okay, that's fine. But think, what are you going to do with that? Where are you going to put it? You're going to put it in God. You're going to transfer and switch your heart to him and say, God, it's you. Hope in the Lord always. And so in conclusion today, friends, you do realize that we're talking about being a child of God here. So if you're wanting to go, wow, like, how do I, how do I do this? You know, I, I want this for myself. I want this peace and rest and satisfaction. I want it. I want this. I want to ask you, are you a child of God? You have to become a child first in order to enjoy the wonderful parenting of this God of heaven. And so you need to come to a place where you recognize your sin. And that really is pride. And you know, I said, Lord, forgive me. I've sinned here. Yeah, would you please help me to... Live a life 
that is totally set apart for you. And the way you do that is, is you, you confess that sin. You say to God, Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. I'm yielding to you as my Lord and Savior. I want you. That's where you've got to start. But if you are a child of God today, friends, has the milk, has the milk dried up in a certain area for you? <laughs> and have you taken your request repeatedly to God to say, please give me milk? <laughs> I need this. And God's saying no. Will you submit to what God is withholding at this time? And will you say, God, my hope is in you. I'm giving you the affection of my heart. And saying, though I don't understand this and I don't want this, I'm giving it up for you. I'm not going to look to anybody else but to you. I embrace the process of what you are wanting to do in my life and I yield to it today. And friends, I promise you from God's word on the other side is that you will look back on the milk that you so longed for and discover, wow, what God has had in store for me has been even better. You will even forget. God will so work, both now and in eternity, that you will look back and say, wow, I've been able to quieten my soul be content in the hands of this God that has been so good and faithful to me. Let's pray. Father, today we thank you that you are a God who is good and that you love to put your hand upon us and father us so well. And so God, we want to trust you today. We want to say, Lord, our hope is in you both now and forevermore. We want to embrace, Lord, the joy of discovering what it means to be like that child that is weaned, trusting themselves to that mom, totally at rest, totally at peace, totally content. We want to be like that, Lord, we pray. Help us in these days to trust your hand as you guide us sovereignly, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.